Happy weekend, listeners. I am here with a special fiction pick for you today. I love it when we do these. We do these so rarely, but I love it when we do. So I'd Rather Be Reading is a nonfiction books podcast. You knew that. So when we do have a fiction pick on, you know it's one that's extra special. And that is exactly what today's pick is. I'd Rather Be Reading was on hiatus over the summer. And to be honest with you, I was so busy with my elevated role at Marie Claire and quite frankly, life that I wasn't sure there would ever be a season eight of the show. But then I had the opportunity to interview Mitch Album, who is on the top 10 list of my favorite authors ever, no question. And I originally thought I'd just do a one episode special with him when his new book came out in November, which is why it'll be a little bit confusing to you when you listen to the episode and you hear me say we're coming back from hiatus, which will make no sense since I feel like we put out 5,000 episodes every week, it feels like. But after I interviewed Mitch, I remembered how much I love this show and how much I love interviewing authors. So season eight was born and has become more than I could have ever anticipated it to be. Mitch's latest book, The Little Liar, came out this week, and you are going to love this interview. It might be one of my favorites that I've ever done on this show or elsewhere. After we wrapped recording, Mitch and I got to talk for a little bit, and he ended up sending me a signed first edition of The Five People You Meet in Heaven, which you'll hear me say in the episode is my favorite fiction book of all time, and it is. I cry and cry every time I read it. It is so beautiful. Though Mitch started out as a journalist and a sports journalist at that, Mitch's books lately, for the most part anyway, have been fiction, including this one. We'll get deep into the plot in our conversation, but The Little Liar is about the Holocaust. It is a harrowing subject to tackle, but Mitch, as ever, does it with dignity and grace. I sort of do a weird mini biography of Mitch to introduce him, which I normally don't do with authors present, but I want to expound a little here in the introduction. His books have sold over 40 million, 40 million copies worldwide, and he first gained national attention when he wrote Tuesdays with Maury in 1997, a title I'm sure many of you will recognize and have probably read. Oprah Winfrey went on to produce a television movie adaptation of the same name for ABC in 1999. It was the most watched TV movie of the year and won four Emmy Awards. In 2002, the stage version of Tuesdays with Maury, which was co-authored by Mitch, debuted, making Mitch a playwright, a versatile writer that can hop from journalism to nonfiction books, to fiction books, to plays, and so much more. Starting in 2003, most of Mitch's books have been fiction. The first was the aforementioned The Five People You Meet in Heaven, published that year, followed by For One More Day in 2006. In 2009, Mitch switched back to nonfiction with Have a Little Faith and then returned to fiction for his next four offerings, The Timekeeper in 2012, The Magic Strings of Frankie Presto also in 2012, The First Phone Call from Heaven in 2013, and The Next Person You Meet in Heaven in 2018. We talk about finding Chica, a little girl, an earthquake, and the making of a family in the episode. This was a return to nonfiction and was published in 2019. It tells the story of Mitch and his wife Janine adopting an orphan in Haiti named Chica. She was diagnosed with a brain tumor and died in 2017 after a two-year battle. She was just seven years old. Please don't make the mistake of reading a book like that in an airport, like I did, just saying. Mitch's latest two books, 2021's The Stranger in the Lifeboat and now The Little Liar, which came out November 14th, are a return to fiction. 
To me, this is an interview of a lifetime. It was such an honor to sit with you, Mitch, one I won't soon forget. Take a listen. We are pulling I'd Rather Be Reading out of hiatus for one incredibly special guest. Mitch Album, whose latest work of fiction, The Little Liar, is out November 14th. Mitch has had a storied career. His books have sold over 40 million copies worldwide. Once a sports writer, his work now focuses on inspiration, including, of course, the classic Tuesdays with Maury, released in 1997, unbelievably 26 years ago. He is the author of, though he doesn't yet know this, my very favorite fiction book of all time, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, and The Little Liar is his eighth novel. If all of that wasn't enough, he's also been a columnist, a a radio host, a playwright, a musician, a philanthropist, and most importantly, just a good human being. Mitch, it is one of the honors of my life, truly, to have you here today. Welcome to the show. Wow. Thank you, Rich. (laughs) That's a a hard introduction to live up to, but I'll, I'll do my best. I'm not kidding. The Five People You Meet in Heaven. If anybody ever asks me what's your favorite fiction book of all time, that's my pick. I, I've read that book so many times. It's not a long read, and I can read it in one sitting. And every single time I read it, I get something new from it. And I, I can't get through that book without crying. So I just, I'm actually going to ask you about that book later in the show. But thank you for, for all of your books. Actually, I've read every single one of your books. Actually, you'll get a kick out of this. I was moving a few months ago, having kind of a difficult time about it and praying and just, kind of talking to God while I was packing boxes and I was packing my books and was kind of having a low moment of just life, to be honest with you. And the book I picked up to put in the box was have a little faith, which is one of your books. And that was, that was just a message for me in that moment. And and the book is great too, but that was just a message for me in that moment to indeed have a little faith. So you, you've just been a part of my life for a very long time. You don't know me, but I certainly know you. And I want to talk about the Little Liar. So this is such a good book. And by the way, this is a nonfiction books podcast. So if I have a fiction author on here, if I have a fiction book on here, it's because I loved it. And this, this is a tough subject matter, Mitch, the, the Holocaust. So what led you to want to write about this time period? This had to be such a difficult world to inhabit for as long as it took you to write this book. Why, why this subject matter? Well, I think you know, I grew up Jewish, and I think once I got into writing, uh, and particularly writing fiction, in the back of my mind, there was always the idea that I wanted to set a story during the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to write a book about the Holocaust. There are far better books written about the Holocaust than I could ever attempt, particularly by people who were involved. Right. So I, I didn't want to do a nonfiction book, per se, like that. But I thought if I can ever find a, a setting for a Holocaust story that that I could use the backdrop and try to make some point that was pertinent to today, I wanted to do it. And years went by and I could never find it. You know, I, I didn't want to do a book that was just set in a concentration camp, as as many fine Holocaust novels are. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just didn't want to add to that. It always seemed that, well, that's been done and that's been done and that's been done and they all you know, seem to revolve around Holland or Austria or Germany and 
you know, something that happens there or crystal knocked or, you know, and then next thing you know, you're in a concentration camp and, mm -hmm. and the whole story is about the grimness or how people survive in the concentration camps. And that's just been done. And so, you know, year after year, I couldn't find anything that, that really creatively made me feel like I was going to do something new. And then uh, a number of years ago, a few years back, uh, I was in Israel and went to a museum there, a Holocaust museum there. Mm -hmm. And they, there were these videos uh, of survivors talking about various you know, things that they went through. And I saw one of a woman who said, well, when they put us on the train platforms to take us to the concentration camps, they would have Jewish people lie to us about where we were going. Mm -hmm. and say, you know, it's going to be all right, you're going to new jobs, or we're going to a new country. And so they tricked us uh, by using our own people to try to get us to go on onto the trains. Wow. Because you wonder, you know, why would people just willingly get on a train if they knew that it was going to their death? Wouldn't they fight on the train platform to right. not get on? Right. So that always stayed in my head. And that became the germ of uh, what ultimately became The Little Liar many years later, because I thought, all right, I've never read a book from that perspective about, you know, someone who was actually Jewish, who was, you know, a member of the victim class, mm -hmm. who was somehow tricked into lying to his own people. Mm -hmm. And uh, ultimately, I was able to develop a story out of that. Well, this is kind of a rhetorical question, but I wonder what that person got out of it like if they were if their life was spared if they would do that if they would lie to people i i that's and and i've never thought about see i mean obviously i've studied the holocaust i think we all have but I've, i never thought about that part of the story and you know this may be a fiction book but you did a t you had to have done a ton of research to write oh, yeah. book. and you know that visit to the museum over 10 years ago the video from the holocaust survivor just re again recounting how Jewish people were sometimes used to lie to fellow Jewish people, which is just such a betrayal. The whole thing is, of course, a mess, but it's just such a betrayal and just it's it's just terrible. Um, you said that that perversion of truth with life and death on the line stayed with you, as you just said a minute ago, months and even years later, it's the seed of the little liar. How do you take something that stuck with you like that and begin to write about it? So you're moved by seeing this video at the museum. How do you then go and start to germinate this this idea for for a book because I've been moved by a lot of I'm not a fiction writer admittedly I'm I, I wish I was I wish I had that creative gene I'm a, I'm I'm a journalist but how do you take something that moves you like that and then start to develop a plot line around it well you know I, my background was as a journalist too yes and so yes. so reporting and research is kind of comes natural to me and uh what I do to answer the question that you specifically asked, I look for sort of themes that I want to write about. I, I have a lot of novelist friends who say that they sort of start their novels and they let the characters take them where they are going to go. And I look at that and I go, are you kidding me? <laughs> like my characters look up from the page and go, don't ask us where we're going. You know, you're in <laughs> you're the writer. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're only here because of you. We're, we're, we're you know, so, I can't do that. I can't meander through a book. I have to know before I start it, what's the point? What am I trying to say? So for example, the five people you meet in heaven, you mentioned before, mm -hmm. um, I wanted to write a book about, you know, people who feel like they don't matter 
And how could you, how do you find out in life that you do matter? Mm. And wouldn't it be kind of, and it was actually based on a, a real person's, uh, an uncle of mine whose name was Eddie, who, who always thought he didn't matter. He always thought he was a nobody. They used to mm -hmm. call himself a nobody. I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody. Nothing. I never done nothing. And, uh, and I would always say, how do you convince somebody who thinks they're a nobody that they're somebody? Well, maybe I create a story in heaven where you find out after you die that, you know, all the people that you affected, a little like it's a wonderful life, you know, yeah, where yeah. Jimmy Stewart is shown, you know, what the world would be like if he wasn't in it. Um, well, in The Little Liar, I wanted to show what perverting the truth does to people. And that was the theme. What happens when truth becomes the victim, when you can't believe the people that you supposedly trust, you can't believe the people in charge, you can't even necessarily believe your own family. And, and I thought, well, I can't create a very sympathetic character out of somebody who willingly decides to lie to his own people, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a grown man who said, well, I'm going to save myself, so I'm going to lie to my people. But what if I had a little boy and he was tricked into doing it. And, and so now you're going to, you know, as a reader, you're going to say, oh, no, 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 don't, don't ruin his innocence. Mm -hmm. And yet he, he's, and, and so I create this character whose name is Nico, a little yeah, boy. Nico, yeah. And he, he grows his whole life until he's 11 years old and never tells a lie. Mm -hmm. He's just one of these miraculous kids who just doesn't lie. You know, you ask him if he's, if he's hungry and he says, you know, yes or no, you know, even if there's cake on the table, you ask him if he's tired and, you know, to go to sleep. And most kids say, no, 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 because they want to stay up. And he says, yeah, I, I am. I have to go to sleep. Mm -hmm. You ask him if he did his homework and he says, no, you know, one of those kind of kids. And um, suddenly the Nazis come in and they get a hold of him uh, and find out that he has this reputation and they realize they can use him to fool people because, you know, wouldn't you believe an 11 year old boy? Right. And, 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 and that to me was like tragic. Uh, and that I knew that I could get people's empathy, like, oh no, no, don't do that to that little boy. And then what, what's going to happen to that little boy as a result of his lying. And that's what really becomes the story of the little liar. There, Nico is one of the many characters in this book. There are a lot of characters in this book. You, you empathize and sympathize with with so many different. It's 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 a heart wrenching book. It's it's a book that's absolutely worthy of being read by everyone. But it's, it's gut wrenching. And so, how do you go about the process of character development? Do you do you feel like you know these people by the end of the writing? What is that process like? Hmm. Well, it's a good question. Um, there are times when I've written books where the lead character is somebody like the five people you meet in heaven, somebody I'm kind of basing the book off of someone mm -hmm. I knew. And that's a lot easier because you kind of can see them, you can hear them, uh, you kind of know how they would react to certain situations. So when you create those situations in a book, maybe you remember an incident where they said something or did something, made a face, you know, physically did something and you can just kind of recreate it. In The Little Liar, I didn't really know any of these people. There are there are four main people, as you say, I have a lot of characters, but there's just really four that the book focuses on from the beginning to the end. And it, it traverses their lives basically for about 40 years. And they start, three of them are children. One is Nico, one is his brother, Sebastian, who is nowhere near as honest as his as his younger brother and is mm -hmm. a little less good looking and 
you know, I, I see Nico as sort of a young Brad Pitt, you know, uh, he's just okay. handsome. He's like cute beyond belief. And everybody says, oh, such a beautiful boy and such a such a such a such a good, honest boy. And then his older brother is kind of a little gawky and awkward mm -hmm. and, and always envies him. And then there's this little girl who's in between them, whose name is Fanny, yeah. who uh, Sebastian. Sebastian kind of has a crush on, but she likes Nico. This is all when they're, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old. Mm -hmm. And the fourth character is a guy as a Nazi named Udo Graf. And he's the guy who decides to uh, steal Nico, trick him, turn him into a liar, mm -hmm. and ultimately uh, keeps him, saves him from going to the concentration camp uh, and, and turns his life on edge. And so I didn't really know any of those for people i mean i've never known a nazi thank god and right, right. Uh, and and i didn't grow up in greece which is where the book is set which is another thing i wanted to do that was different you know i don't i have not read very many holocaust books that are set in greece most people don't even know that greece was a victim of the holocaust uh -huh. uh, you know and, and most of the books are set as i say in poland and austria it's a you know and and uh uh you know, I wanted to set it in a place that people didn't know. Uh, and I I actually lived in Greece for a stretch of time in my life. And so uh, Greece, I'm, you may, may or may not realize that the city of Thessaloniki or Salonika, as it was called back then, was actually the only Jewish majority city in all of Europe. It's the yeah. only place where Jews were a majority and it was wiped out by the Nazis. And so I set the story there. And uh, yeah, I visited there. I went over there, did research trips, but you know, I didn't grow up there and, and, uh, and I'm not Greek. So, you know, you have to do a lot of imagining. You have to do a lot of research. And then, and then you try to find the human characteristics that are the same, no matter if the character is fictional or, or real life or whatever, you know, you try to find heartbreak and you find a loss and uh, love and crushes and you know anger and jealousy between brothers and these are all things that we've gone through in our lives and and you imagine them for your characters and you you paint your characters with the, with the with that palette yeah and i really appreciate and i'm not going to give anything away no spoilers here but i really appreciate at the end of the book how the the lessons they learned are all kind, it's it's very neatly tied up with the bow it's a messy story because the holocaust of course is messy but it, there's just there's just a very like the way that you close it it's just it's it's it was satisfying for this reader and I do want to talk about specifically about the the Greek the Greek experience under the Nazis is that something that you saw at the museum as well why why did you choose to focus on that because I feel like I'm a student of history I had no idea about that so why yeah. where did you find out about that well, I lived in Greece, as I say, so yeah. I, was, I was I was kind of partial to telling a Greek story. And I wanted, as I said, as I said to pick a place that hadn't been overdone in, in, in Holocaust literature or something. And when I found out that Thessalonica, you know, had had so many synagogues and so many Jewish newspapers and it was it was a Jewish city, you know, for so many years uh, and that nobody, like you said, Nobody knew it. And I mm -hmm. thought, okay, not only can I tell a good story here, a good fictional story about lies and truth, but I can introduce something that even people who think they've read a lot of books about the Holocaust go, oh, I didn't know that. Yep. I didn't know that. And and also Greece is, is, 
it's an idyllic kind of place if you've ever been there you know it's warm mm-hmm. uh it, it's, it's Thessalonica like a lot of cities uh is is on the sea it's on the Aegean Sea you can sit on the on a on a, a harbor there and look over and see Mount Olympus you know across the water it's just beautiful and it's an ancient city it goes back to 300 BCE you know so you're talking about a great backdrop in which you can describe olive oil markets and 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 cobblestone streets and and these ancient uh Moorish buildings and and how once upon a time uh you know uh, Christians Muslims and Jews all lived in the city so harmoniously that Friday, Saturday, and Sunday were considered bank holidays. There were three days a week that you couldn't go into the banks because they were trying to recognize all the religions that were there. So you have all this interesting stuff about this city that most people have never gone to or seen. Let's face it, a lot more people have gone to, to France, uh, you know, yeah. at least American readers, than have gone to Thessaloniki. So, um, uh, you know, I just thought this will be fresh. And it'll be part of a of, of a new, you know, I hope people will read the book and say, oh, you got to read this book. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a really cool story about these, you know, what happens to these children during the course of the Holocaust. Well, I've read a lot of Holocaust books. Yeah, but this one's set in Greece, you know, like it's right. Greece. So I didn't know Greece. And hopefully it sparks a little discussion about, you know, just how widespread the Nazi terror really was during that period of time. Yeah, because we think about, I mean, of course, we think about certain countries being affected, but I'm going to be honest with you, I've never thought about Greece being affected. And so it was, and I love history. And so you taught me some things. I mean, even again, even though this is a fiction book, there's obviously so much research that has gone into this and you and you do have such a storied career as a journalist that you can feel that research in here and you know so much of this book including the title is based on lies and keeping your word and the truth so I want to read to you some lines that I pulled out from the book that I loved if you don't mind so I loved the lines the end of a lie is always darkness And then also truth is a straight line, but human life is a flexible experience. That's brilliant. Um, I still unpacking that another one. Some lies are easier to believe than the truth. Yes. Um, Sometimes a lie is merely truth that is yet to happen. And of course, and listeners, when you read the book, you'll understand this, but truth be told, truth be told, like I'm getting goosebumps as I'm saying that out loud. Um, that line will impact you so much listeners. When you read the book, there's so many quotable moments here, but you know, what inspired, I know, I know that that video inspired this, but it's such a tough subject matter lying. And so, you know, tell me about like how you, how you work through that thematic element throughout the book. Well, as I mentioned, I try with each book to say, okay, what's this book really going to be about? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's what value will it have to people? I guess the, you know, the the nonfiction writer in me and the Tuesdays with Maury writer in me kind of always approaches every book with like, what's in it for the reader? Um, I know that may not be how novelists necessarily do their work other novelists they may just say well I just have the story I want to tell and I'm just going to tell it I'm not worried about the reader but I always kind of approach it as well there's so many books out there and people have so little time why are they going to want to pick up this book even if it's a novel unless there's something at the end that sort of inspires them or makes them think about their own life or teaches something or Mm -hmm. something like that and so I've tried to do that with with all of all of my books. I mean, the five people you meet in heaven is about people who don't matter. And uh, for one more day, 
is about people who wish, you know, after somebody dies that they could have, you know, one more visit with them. Or what would you really say if you knew that they were gone and then you got another day with them again, what would you do? Everybody's that's kind of a universal thing, you know, mm -hmm. same thing with the first phone call from heaven, which was about, you know, if, if you actually got to speak to people who were gone, how would you spend the time, you mm -hmm. know, and, uh, uh, strange, the, the stranger in a lifeboat was about, you know, these 10 people who are stranded in a lifeboat after the, a boat blows up, uh, that they're on and, and they pull a guy out of the water who says that he's God and he's there to save them. Yeah. And, and, you know, w will you believe that, you know, what does it take for you to believe that help is coming? Does it have to be exactly what you expected, what you expect it to look like, or can you accept help in some different way? So th these are all things that, you know, while I tell fictional stories, I hope that by the end, there's some kind of theme or lesson or something that people can pull out of and say, you know, I never thought about that, or I'm thinking more about it as a result of that book. Then I feel like I've done something worthwhile and I've created something that isn't just a way to turn pages, but it's also to get people to kind of think about things. And so The Little Liar is about above all else. And we've talked a lot about Holocaust and things, but that's not what it's about. It's about- exactly about the price of truth and, mm -hmm. and, 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 the, and, the, and the cost of lying. And uh, the reason there are so many lines, and you could have probably pulled five more, 10 more that are sort of like quotable lines about the truth is that that's what I was thinking about throughout the course of the entire story. In fact, the book is narrated by truth. And it says it right at the beginning, like you can trust this book. Uh, you can trust it because I'm the only thing in the world that you can trust. You know, mm -hmm. if people say that they can trust nature. Nah, nature's fickle. People say that they can trust faith. Which faith? You know, people say they can trust humans. Ha, you know, humans, humans, you can only trust as far as that they're going to look out for themselves. I'm the only thing you can trust. I'm truth. Mm -hmm. And everything I'm going to tell you here now is about how I view the world. And I sort of thought, well, well the truth looked at the world and how we live in it, or certainly how we lived in it during that time wouldn't its heart be broken all the time, you know, yeah. uh, with, with the, you know, like, oh, look at how you're destroying me here, or look at how you're demolishing me here. And then he, here's little Nico, who is like Truth's favorite, favorite child, you know, look, this little boy, he's never told a lie. He loves the truth so much. He's never told a lie. And then Truth watches as the Nazis pervert this kid and trick him into running up and down the platform every day. They tell him, his, they take his family and they tell him, you know, your family will be safe and you'll get to be, see them again if you just do this little favor for us. Just help these people on the train platform because that they're going to so be- so many lies, lies yeah. on lies on lies. Yeah, exactly. And they force him to lie to his own people. And he does it day after day thinking that he's doing the right thing. And he says, don't worry, you know, we're going to, a, you're going to go to a nice town and there's going to be jobs there. And they start saying, did you hear that? There's going to be jobs there. Okay. And they willingly get on these trains. And then on the very last day uh, of the trains, he sees his own family is being loaded into the trains. And he, he realizes he's been tricked. And, uh, you know, a, a man on the platform says they're taking us to die. And he realizes he has participated for months in this exercise of, of, of basically sending all the people he's ever known, including his own family, off to their deaths. And as he runs to try to join them, the, the Nazi Udo Graf, who's tricked him this whole time, grabs him and says, no, you don't go. And, uh, you know, and he, he does it to save his life. Mm -hmm. But of course, he separates him from his family forever. 
and his family is sent to the concentration camps and Nico is left behind. Mm -hmm. And from that point forward, he becomes a pathological liar. He can't ever tell the truth again. And mm -hmm. this is the real victimhood of truth in this book, that someone who was so pure and true when he realizes he's been lying, he can't even utter the truth anymore because, mm -hmm. because it's, it's too much for him to, it reminds him of what he's done. And so he literally loses the ability to tell the truth. And as a result, becomes incredibly uh, 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 skilled at moving through the war uh, as a as a as a 12 year old 13 year old 14 year old liar and he mm -hmm. he just he, he puts himself in all these positions he 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 ends up you know pretending he's a german sometimes or pretending he's a romanian pretending he's a polish guy and he and he, he finds his way to the concentration camp by doing that to try to save his family i want to ruin any any bit yeah, of no plot. spoilers but yeah but, yeah uh, but so 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 much of it is just about the price that we pay for lying and I think that that is very relevant today. Uh, and that's why I thought it was a good theme because we live in a world where we sort of make up our own truths. You know, the, you, the country, our country is, is basically two countries. There, it believes, one side believes a whole set of, of, of idioms and truths and the other side thinks that, that that's all lies and baloney and has its own set. And, mm -hmm. and our leaders frequently lie to us and we see what the consequences of that happening in Germany when, you know, Hitler did that. And so um, it's very relevant uh, to what's going on today. And I wanted people to think about the theme of, of truth and how we destroy it with our lives. So good. And, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking Nico's story is the loss of innocence story on steroids, right? Yeah. Like it's just, it's, it's so much. And, and I, um, I, you're right. I mean, it's about, it's a book about the Holocaust, but that's the setting. It's not, it's, it's so much bigger than that, you know, and, and it, and it translates, as you just said, all the way into present day. I'm just wondering how long does a book like this take you to write? Can you, do you do this in like, like when you, when you've done the research and you sit down to actually write the book, how long does that take to do? Does it take a month? Yeah. Does it take a year? How long does that take? It's, it's about a year. Uh, you know, I, again, I know novelists who've done nothing but sort of write novels and, and some, some of them take them, you know, four years and send them meander. They work on one book for 10 years. And I, I think because of my journalism background and I was always on deadline and I was a sports writer, mm -hmm. sports writers are on the worst kind of deadlines. Yeah. You know? You know, the game is at night and you don't know the outcome until the very last second sometimes. And then you've got to file a story within five minutes afterwards. So I am used to deadlines and I'm used to sort of pockets of time and think I've, I've gotten into a rhythm where I, I, I sort of my books now come out every two years. I can't mm -hmm. write every year. I don't know how guys like John Grisham and and Stephen King and guys, I don't know how they do it. I, yeah. I don't know how they turn out sometimes two books a year. I can't do that. But but I sort of, um, you know, I, I, I get an idea and I, I sort of think about it and then I decide, OK, that's what I'm going to do. I do my research and I sit down and the actual writing of it is about is about a year, you know, nine months to a year. And then the book comes out, you do some, you know, publicity for you go right. Then you take a breath and you feel like I'm never going to write again. <laughs> I'm right. exhausted. Especially uh, after this book, I bet you you need a break after yeah, writing. Yeah, I, I need a break. I need a break. And then like, I don't know, one morning comes and you go, yeah, this is kind of a neat idea. Maybe that would be a 
no, 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 you're tired. Don't do it. You know, and then you wake <laughs> up the next day. And say, well, you know, I, I'm still thinking about that idea. No, you're tired. Go back to bed. And uh, it just seems to work out that, you know, uh, sort of another nine months go by. And the next thing I know, I'm sitting back down and writing again. And and uh, then I just deliver on deadline to make sure that it gets in, you know, in time. And I like having a deadline. I, I've had one my whole life and it mm -hmm. doesn't scare me. And if I don't have it, I'll just take as long as they give me, you know, so I'm, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. We are cut from the same cloth. So as we begin to wrap up, I cannot have time with you and not ask you about the five people you meet in heaven. I wish you knew. I feel like I've probably sold like 500 plus copies of this book. <laughs> Thank you for that. No, yeah, we we appreciate it. My family yeah. appreciates it. I'm just here to sell books for you. But I, I'm telling you, I've had to purchase the five people you meet in heaven probably at least 10 or 15 times because I keep giving away my copy. Like at, at one point I had three or four different copies and all like they all go away because it's just such a moving book to me. And, you know, <sighs> I've read I've read every single one of your books. Again, my favorite fiction book of all time, The Five People You Meet in Heaven. I am not sure I've ever cried so much reading something. And I bet this is kind of like choosing a favorite child. But of obviously, other than The Little Liar, do you have a project that you're most proud of throughout the years? Like, is there a book that you say, man, like I really nailed it with that one? Well, I don't, I don't think I'm ever confident enough to say I really nailed it with that one. I'm one of those people... Again, you probably have this as a journalist. I always want to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. And and uh, uh, when I was writing my sports column, uh, I would file for the seven o'clock deadline, and then I would change it for the ten o'clock deadline, and then I would change it for the midnight deadline, and then I would change it for the one a.m. chaser deadline because I kept feeling I could make it better. I could make it better. I could make mm -hmm. it better. And and it's the same thing with my books. I turn in, you know, the what's supposed to be the final draft. And then they send back the proofs and I'm changing it again. And then they send back the galleys and I'm changing it again. And and so I don't I don't ever really say, wow, I really nailed it. But to answer your question, um, I think the best book that I've written from a writing point of view is called Finding Chica, which oh, is a yes. so good. about about uh, a little girl from Haiti that that uh, we sort of adopted uh, when she had a brain tumor and. I always want that to be my best book because I feel that, um, you know, her life was cut off. She died when she was seven and her life was cut off too short and the world never got to meet her. But through that book, maybe they can. Exactly. And you do. So yeah. Sort of stands as a testament to her. Um, amongst my novels, um, you know, Five People You Meet in Heaven is probably my sort of favorite child because it was my first one. And, um, you know, there was a kind of an interesting backdrop to it because uh, I had written Tuesdays with Maury only to pay Maury's medical bills. That wasn't ever supposed to be a big book or anything. Mm -hmm. I was a sports writer and, and uh, you know, he, he was in debt for his medical bills. And so I wrote this little book about our experience together of him dying from Lou Gehrig's disease and me coming to visit him every Tuesday and talking about what we know about life when we really, you know, really are facing death that puts everything in perspective. And, and, you know, it's supposed to be this tiny book. They printed like 20,000 copies and, and I was going to go back to being a sports writer. And that was that. And then it just became something that no one could have imagined. And it just caught fire and people started reading it. And then it started being published around the world. And, and my life changed, you know, sort of, uh, instead of people asking me who's going to win the Super Bowl. 
uh, people would come up and say, my mother died of cancer. And the last thing we did was read your book together. Can, can I talk to you about her? And, and, and so my world became, you know, instead of fans and, and, and footballs and, and box scores and games, my, my life became a series of talking to people about their losses and uh, their loved ones and, and about hope and uh, visiting hospitals and visiting hospice centers and, and universities and, and so when time came to write another book, um, Tuesdays with Maury had become such a big thing that I was sort of paralyzed. I didn't write anything for six years because it's like, how do you follow up that That's book? That's kind of like Michael Jackson's thriller. Like, what do you do now? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like what, what's next? Oh, yeah. I never thought about that. But yeah, OK. I don't know what Michael Jackson did after thriller, but whatever it was, I'm sure, you know, that they're, you know, people were going to compare it. And, and, and you know, people were saying, well, what's your next subject that you're going to choose and I knew that there was nothing that was going to be in nonfiction that was going to be as personal um, as Tuesdays with Maury and I didn't want to force it you know like well let me find somebody else who's dying and I can talk to them or right 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 like that so that's when I got the idea to do a novel Mm. and um well, what if I just did fiction? And they said, no, 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 that's a terrible idea. But I said, well, that's what they said about Tuesdays with Maury too. Nobody wanted Tuesdays with Maury. Everybody thought it was a terrible idea mm. and turned down by almost everybody. So I decided to write a novel about, based on somebody that I knew who was an old uncle of mine named Eddie, who went to his death thinking that he didn't matter. And he was a war veteran, uh, World War II. And he always said, I never been nowhere that I wasn't shipped to with a rifle, you know, like that was his life. He was a cab driver and a bar. He, he worked behind a bar and he, he, he unpacked boxes. I mean, he was just a blue collar guy. And um, and he died saying I'm a nobody. And I could never convince him that I loved him. And I thought he was certainly a somebody, you know, and so in the book, Eddie is a is looks like my uncle, talks like my uncle, you know, and all that. <laughs> He works at an amusement park fixing the rides yep. and I's trying to save a little girl uh, who who falls from a, this this tower drop. He, and as it's dry, you know, he goes to try to push her out of the way as this thing is coming down. And as he feels her kind of hands in his hands, the world goes black and he wakes up in heaven not knowing if he saved her or not. And he finds out that the first stage of heaven is that you meet five people from your life, um, some of whom you may have known very well and some of whom may be total strangers to you, but in some way you change their life forever. And he realizes through meeting these five people that his life wasn't, uh, he wasn't a nobody, that Mm -hmm. he affected all these different people. And if you think about a guy who fixes rides at an amusement park and think about, well, if he didn't do his job, some ride could have gone awry and people could have been killed. And if those mm-hmm. people, then they never would have grown up and they never would have married. And then the kids that they would have had never would have come into the world. And, you know, pretty quickly you see that how he affects not just a few lives, but thousands and thousands of lives. And, and, and uh, it was a beautiful idea. And it was something that I kind of wanted to do for my uncle. Um, and it's a very precious concept to me. Uh, and, uh, I actually, I do believe that that is kind of what happens to you in heaven because my uncle had a near-death experience um, upon which the story is sort of based. He died on the operating table. Mm. 
and and then was brought back to life. And he told me that while he was on the operating table, he floated above his body and that he saw all of his dead relatives waiting for him at the edge of the bed. Oh, wow. Now, the funny part of it is I said to him, well, gee, what'd you do, Uncle Ed? What'd you do? And he said, what'd I do? I told him, get the hell out of here. I'm not ready. <laughs> and like you fall in love with the character of Eddie in, in this book. And in, in that book, you know, some of the people, some of the five are obvious and some of them are not at all. And you just realize you never know who you touch in your life and how you could have had a profound impact on someone and you don't even remember the interaction. And I want to say one thing about finding Chica. Um, I should know better than to read any of your books in public because every single one of them makes me cry. And I read finding Chica in an airport at the gate at the airport and my flight was delayed and delayed. And I'm reading this book and I just start sobbing like throughout. And I mean, and people are looking at me and I should have put the book down probably I couldn't. And so I just, well, I just need to know that when I read your books, I need to go to a quiet place alone and be able to cry and be reflective because they're just all so good. And, you know, I want to close with our last question here. And I want to bring it back, of course, to the little liar, which is stacks up completely with all of the other amazing work you've done. What do you hope readers when they close the book, when they close The Little Liar, what do you hope that they say about it? What do you hope that they ultimately take away from the book? That truth is precious and that a lie told once is easily identified as a lie, but a lie told a thousand times starts to sound like the truth. Mm. And there's a consequence to a world where that can easily happen. You know, we have social media where somebody puts out something that's false and 10 million people click on it as if it's true yeah. and very easy to be deceived. And unless we unless we become once again a people that values honesty and values truth, there's no telling the darkness that you can tumble into. And there's plenty of darkness in in that gets tumbled into in The Little Liar. But ultimately, you know, as, as I try to do with all my books, there's there's a, an inspirational ending to it uh, with regard to, you know, the the value of truth and how truth oh, truth wins in the end. Right. There just there just may be nobody left you know, to uh, to to celebrate that if we keep acting the way we do. So that's what I hope people take away from it. That's so good. And I can't tell you what an honor it is to have you here. Your work has inspired me as a journalist with your nonfiction work and touched me with your novels over the years in ways I can't put into words. Listeners, The Little Liar is the latest in such a storied career. It's out November 14th. Mitch, thank you so, I mean, I just can't even believe this is happening. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm, I'm honored to be with you. It's been a pleasure, Rachel. Thanks for your kind words. Thanks for your good questions. And thanks for sharing uh, my, my work with your audience. This interview was recorded back in August when I was in New Orleans. I had had a really rough summer that doesn't really warrant getting into here. And this interview with Mitch was not only a professional honor, but a personal uplift. It sparked truly this entire season of I'd Rather Be Reading and every conversation you've heard so far in season eight and all of those to come are a direct result of the inspiration I pulled from this 39 minute conversation with one of my heroes. 
Just like in the five people you meet in heaven, you never know how one interaction with someone can change their life. Mitch, you changed mine, and this conversation in many ways brought me back to life. Thank you. I'll cherish it forever. Have a good weekend, friends.